shit. <laughs> All right. It's going to be okay. I'll be gentle. Yeah, no, it's cool. All right. So, yeah, we are live. Happening. You sound official. Hell yeah. You so, just like got serious. You yeah. lent into the microphone. Absolutely. You get that. Get get the mindset. It's game time. Game seven mentality. I'm excited. So, uh, yeah, this is the first episode of the Mysteria podcast. So, pretty cool. It's Congratulations. About, thank you very much. It's about three years in the making of doing this. So, I'm extremely nervous and excited. So, I, I think it's all downhill from here. A hundred percent. Hope with any luck, you know, yeah. with any luck. Um, so my first guest is my IP teacher, Dr. I, I don't know how to introduce you other than I think Mr. Dr. Professor Ryan Abbott is actually somewhat close to all your credentials. <laughs> well, either Ryan or, you know, one of my ambitions in coming to England was to become, you know, like a knight or a lord. So I, I'm leaving some post-nominal room to get some more good stuff in. Throw a sir in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every once in a while you get like a professor sir and you're like wow that's cool i hear there's a spot opening up in the royal family there so you might be able to get prince before you head out too while you're at it what so. would i have to do i don't know i did see that they actually i, I imagine you would have thought they actually tried to take a bunch of trademarks indeed that was really interesting indeed it was i didn't follow that too closely but um shows the importance of ip for daily life yeah yeah and i know especially with this show too um that's right holy crap there was a lot of I anyway, mean I asked you a fair number of questions too before I started and man with the not so much about the copyright but the the trademarks in particular was like oh god like you know it's a lot of, it's a lot of work it but, is uh, and yeah. money and money yeah yeah well, well, if we'll you, see if you get sued <laughs> yeah exactly hopefully it should be okay but, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. little little lawsuit should add to your notoriety yeah exactly any publicity is good publicity that's right so well, uh, and, and it was a good decision, by the way, that you changed it from the Microsoft podcast series because that yeah. <laughs> probably wouldn't have been the right thing to do. <laughs> the uh, Viagra podcast. So for all the um, IP people listening right now, they're going to laugh at that joke and no one else is going to understand what the hell we're talking about. But This is good. mainly geared just towards IP practitioners, right? Yeah, just, just all those nerdy guys, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, kind of before we get going, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and... Give us a little insight into the, the world that is Ryan Abbott. Yeah. Well, I'm a law professor here at University of Surrey. I teach IP. I do uh, intellectual property. I, I research mainly now artificial intelligence and the law, um, just because it's cool and interesting. Uh, before coming here, I used to teach in the States, taught law, taught medicine at UCLA. I still have my appointment there. I was a... Uh, a medical doctor before I was a lawyer, did a little bit of medical practice, did some odd and end stuff. But uh, when the opportunity to came here came up, it just seemed like an exciting adventure. Go live abroad. So uh, when I emailed you to come on the show, um, one of the things I wanted to discuss with you was was uh, your schooling. So it's you don't often hear a doctor and a legitimate doctor, like an actual GP. Uh, I, I didn't say like a real doctor, but I take it you did. So yeah, yeah. And, and going into law, I mean that's pretty polar opposite um, fields. How did that kind of happen? Well, I was trying to see how much student debt I could accumulate, <laughs> and those are the two most <laughs> yeah, expensive right. degrees you could really do in the states. <laughs> how did that happen? Well, um, 
I think I was just always sort of drawn to the law. My dad was a lawyer at a big law firm, didn't really care for it. Now is a law professor and loves his job, hmm. but kind of talked me out of being a lawyer my whole life and kind of, I think, nudged me into medicine because I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was in my late teens. And, and then I got to medical school and I'm like, eh, I think I should have gone to law school. But at that point, it was sort of too late to totally change course. And, and I found out you could do a dual degree in law and medicine, and it only took one more year for me at that point. Oh, wow. So I'm like, well, that seems like a no-brainer. And um, it was a lot of school. And then after I got out, I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I went and did my internship, which is my first year of post-grad medical training that gives you a medical license, because otherwise you can't practice medicine. And all my advisors said, well, if you don't do that, you're not a real doctor. And I'm like, well, I'll do a year. <laughs> it was, yeah, a medical internship is a, is a, a tricky thing. But, um, but then after that, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And someone said to me, you have too many degrees to do anything other than academia. And I said, you know, that kind of sounds right. Yeah, that makes sense. So realistically, how many years of university did you do? Well, I did a five-year undergraduate because yep. I changed my major several times. So I got okay. a whole lot of units. I did a four-year master's degree. Four-year master's? Yeah. So it was in, it was in traditional oriental medicine. So oh, acupuncture okay. and herbal medicine. Right. Right. So at some point, um, well, I was into martial arts in my late teens and exploring oriental philosophy. And was doing kendo, which is like Japanese fencing. And I broke my, or I got hit with a wooden sword in my right hand. And my hand swelled up to be like this big for six months. And my girlfriend at the time was like, oh my God, you need to go see a doctor already. And I'm like, okay. So I went to UCLA. I saw an orthopedist. He took an x-ray of my hand. This took three hours. He came in for three minutes and said, I think you broke your knuckle. There's nothing I can do about it. The swelling will go down in another year. You'll probably have arthritis in your hand for the rest of your life. And when I looked like anxious about that, he said, don't worry, lots of people have arthritis. And that he went. And then I got a bill for like $500 for that. And I'm like, that was a very unsatisfying interaction. <laughs> so I, I walked down the street past an acupuncturist office, and I'm like, well, maybe this will help. And I went in, and two treatments later, it looked like this. Really? Yeah. And she's like, you know, you should study acupuncture. And I'm like, well, I'm into that kind of stuff. What is this, like three weeks? And I, I looked up a school. I went there. They're like, it's a four-year program, but take some classes, see if you like it. I did. And, and the amount of work it would take wasn't quite apparent in the beginning to do two degrees at once, but I did the master's at night largely and undergrad in the day. Holy crap. And uh, Jeez. <laughs> not being entirely sure what I wanted to do toward the end of that, you know, thinking occasionally I wanted to go to law school, but being kind of dissuaded from that. You know, everyone in acupuncture school said, well, you're so young. I mean, why be an acupuncturist? You can be a medical doctor and do acupuncture. So I said, well, I guess that sounds reasonable. So off I went. And that was at UCLA? Uh, UCSD was where I went to med school. Okay. Went to UCLA as an undergrad. And I went to Emperor's College, which was nearby for acupuncture. Okay. They don't teach that stuff at mainstream university yeah i was just thinking that yeah but they do have you know about half of u.s medical schools now have integrative medicine programs okay and my appointment at ucla as a as a faculty member is at the center for east-west medicine so it it has been integrated a bit into mainstream healthcare, but not quite yet into mainstream education yeah and i, I know uh my both my parents are in the the medical field and um yeah that was one of the things that they kind of always kind of discuss with me is that they're they're in the pharmacy side but uh yeah it's it's still kind of it's got like that voodoo uh 
what's the term kind of that kind of vibe around it you know some interesting people are in the field Mm -hmm. you've got some real characters um I haven't met anyone doing voodoo yet, but but definitely a lot of hippies. <laughs> hopefully, yes, hopefully one day, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have time yet. Yeah, I'll just actually get you just to pull if you could pull the mic just a touch closer. Touch yeah. closer. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, perfect. That's yeah. good multitasking. Yeah, absolutely. Talking and listening. Hell yeah, yeah. It's a it's an acquired skill, I suppose. It is. Yeah. Lots of people don't have that skill. Well, and and one of the things because I do want to go into criminal defense and with this podcast too, l- listening is a skill. And it takes, it's a, it got, it's so, and especially there's nothing more frustrating. And I'm sure you, you would imagine this too, when you're talking to someone and you can just see on their face that they're just waiting for their turn to just jump in there. And it's like, yeah, but just listen to what people are saying. And then, you know, actually, you know, give it a go, you know. Well, and particularly important for advocates because uh, some people just have their script and they miss very important things being said by witnesses. Yeah, Exactly. I have a, a good friend of mine in L.A. who's in criminal law practice. A couple weeks ago, he said to me, criminal law practice is a lot easier than civil defense because in civil litigation, everyone has convinced themselves that they're right, and if their case doesn't go their way, they blame you. But in criminal defense, everyone knows that they're guilty, and so if their case doesn't go that well, they really don't blame you for it. Yeah, so that's good. So when I start defending... Radio edit. Wow, who am I kidding? I'm going to win every case. Come on. There you go. Me. Yeah. <laughs> got to have that attitude, right? And uh, yeah, so kind of jumping back there. So um, you grew up in Southern California? Mm, Born in the Bay Area. Okay. We lived out in Chicago for 10 years when I grew up. And then from there, I went off to LA. Okay. Yeah. And then, yeah, I guess you did your schooling there. And then, yeah. LA, San Diego, went to New Haven for law school. And then Bay Area again for my medical internship. LA, and then back here. And how long have you been in the UK now? About three and a half years. Recently, oh, okay. permanently settled here. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. You do that after three years if you uh, have the right visa. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I guess you're, pl- yeah, you're planning on staying here for a while then. And so work-wise, you got a lot going on. Got a lot of interesting stuff. I know you tell us about it all the time in, in lectures and stuff. So what's, uh, I know you were mentioning um, patents. Artificial intelligence. Yeah, so just to give you, I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning, but um, your kind of field right now mostly stemming around artificial intelligence and how that is basically affecting and changing. And a lot of the cases, I'm sure that there actually is no existing law currently. So what's what's the deal with that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you how I first got interested in it. Absolutely. And I was, I was writing in kind of drug and device regulation in the U.S. in medicine. And, and one of the problems with that is just no one was that interested in it because it's really boring. I mean, important, yeah, but, but terribly boring. Um, or maybe I just couldn't make it interesting enough. <laughs> I, was, I was teaching patent laws as a course and teaching about inventorship and what makes someone an inventor. So a patent is basically a protection you get for the right sort of new idea, right, for a product or a process like a new microphone or a new perhaps, method of conducting a podcast. Um, You know, and there's often a lot of people involved in making that thing, and the law has a bunch of rules for deciding who is the inventor and thus who initially owns the thing. And often there's contentious debates about, you know, who came up with what, when and where, and, and so forth. And I was also reading about 
AI companies or tech companies that had AI that would do things in drug discovery, like it would go through an antibody library and find an antibody that would match this target you wanted to get, or it would model what the antibody would do in a clinical trial. And the AI would essentially do the sorts of things that used to make a person an inventor. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty interesting. I wonder if anyone's ever thought about that. It turns out people have been writing about it since the 60s. Oh. Um, so, but, you know, kind of in a low-level sort of way. But I took an interest in it and wrote a couple papers, and they got a lot of interest. I was the first, you know, traditionally people were saying, you know, it doesn't really work when you have machines do these things because the purpose of patent law is mainly to incentivize people to do things you want them to do, like a lot of law. So, you know, the underlying goal of patent law is to encourage innovation, and we think that if we give you a patent for making inventions, you'll be more likely to invent, and society gets out of that more inventions. And people before me were saying, well, but, you know, machines don't know or care if they get a patent, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense, and, you know, if a machine makes something and you don't have a traditional human inventor, you shouldn't get protection for it. And I said... Well, but even though machines don't care about patents, people who build and use and own machines care about patents. And greatly. So, indeed. <laughs> indeed they do. Some more than others, but, but I generally agree greatly. And, you know, if we want IBM and Google to build machines that can invent, then we should allow that output to get patents. And I think that this is was going on then, but kind of in a low-level sort of way, but it's going to be really important in the future when machines are better than people at inventing certain sorts of things. You know, like where you just hand a machine 300 million patient records from an insurance database and it says, here's a bunch of stuff I found that would otherwise get patents. Like it turns out Viagra uh, treats male pattern hair loss, although we probably would have discovered that by now. Um, so I was going around kind of talking about the research and businesses were coming up to me and saying, you know, this is really an important issue for us. And, you know, I'd say, oh, you should, you know, do something about it. And, and they'd say, well, yeah, but we'd probably just lose any protection we might get if we didn't put a human inventor on it. And uh, one of my colleagues said, we should do a legal test case. And, uh, but you have to find the client. I'm like, all right. So I called, <laughs> I called one of the early people doing this, who was the first guy I really spoke with about AI invention, a guy named... Um, Stephen Thaler, who's out in the Midwest in the U.S., and said, you know, he said he's had machines doing this since the 90s, and he's been recursively improving them and making them more autonomous, so removing people even more from the inventive process, and he was very excited about, you know, challenging the legal framework for this, and uh, so we filed two patent applications, me, him, and a team of patent attorneys who I, you know, knew or had connections with, um, you know, we wrote up the applications, we filed them in a bunch of different countries, and they list the machine as the inventor, because he doesn't qualify as an inventor, at least not traditionally. Uh, you could make a new rule for a computer programmer being an inventor, but am I getting too technical on patent law? No, here? no, no, no. Keep right? going. Go but, for it. You know, so I, I also kind of discussed this through the frame of one of IBM's business models for Watson. So Watson has something called the Insights Business Model. And basically, clients contract with IBM. They give them big data. IBM runs big data through Watson, which is their flagship AI brand, though it's really a bunch of different AI systems. And Watson produces insights from the data that belong to the client, and the client can patent those. 
Well, it's not clear to me there who an inventor is because you can't be an inventor usually just by contracting for research. And maybe the programmer is an inventor, but at least under U.S. law, you have to completely have a concept of the invention as it will be applied in practice to qualify as an inventor. So if you don't know the problem it's solving, if you don't know the solution it's generating, if you're just programming a machine with problem-solving capabilities, that really wouldn't make you an inventor. And hundreds or thousands of people may have programmed Watson. Maybe the person who recognizes the output and says, well, this is inventive and can get a patent could be an inventor, but not if the output was obvious. If Watson says, Viagra treats male pattern hair loss based on this analysis, and someone says, oh, great, we'll be richer, you know, they haven't exercised inventive skill. And so in instances like that, what do you do, right? So we say the AI should be the inventor because you want a patent, if we want to incentivize this. It would be wrong for people to claim credit for things they haven't done. Not unfair to a machine, but unfair to other human inventors because it devalues what it means to be an inventor. If I can be an inventor just by asking Watson to do things. And the AI's owner should own its output. Uh, if an AI makes a trade secret, you own that trade secret. If a machine in your parents' bakery bakes a loaf of bread, you own the bread. Um, and we, we filed two patents in the UK and in Europe, in the European Patent Office. They evaluated them and said, essentially, these are patentable, although there's a final top-up search they do at the end. And then we corrected the inventorship and said, oh, by the way, there's no human inventor, and both have been rejected. And there we're appealing go. both now. Meanwhile, the applications pending in the US and Israel, Taiwan, China, Korea, Israel, if I didn't say that, and soon to be Canada, and we have more jurisdictions joining on board. So it's exciting stuff. No one's really dealt with these questions yet. And the, uh, the U.S. Patent Office and the World Intellectual Pat Property Office, which is the uh, UN IP agency, have said we need new policies on this. So they're launching a request for consultations. Um, so it's an exciting time. And I know, so obviously people off screen can't see this, but Ibrahim, my good fellow Canadian buddy over here, uh, who's in law with us too, um, I know probably a lot, most of the people listening, well, let's be kidding, no one's listening right now, but, but they when, will. when people listen, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people, they're not going to be law people, and I'm sure they're kind of thinking like, okay, like, how is this at all kind of relevant to just the average person and Eve and I have had many conversations where, so um, self-driving cars, that vehicle crashes, person dies. When you talk about liability, um, that's an interesting thing because now it's who's liable for this type of technology? Is it the, well, is it some Westworld situation where now we're going to give the technology, like, you know, treated as a person so that that is somehow liable is it the inventors is it the company who pay you know whose employees are you know the so it gets squirrely rather quick it, you don't even really have to get below the superficial level to notice some crazy things going on so in regards to that um is there any current law kind of dealing with that or is it kind of in a situation, it must be a bit of a purgatory situation right now because all this AI technology must, is just so new. Well, that raises a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I think <laughs> it's what makes this interesting for people. And so even for people, you know, I'll break it to self-driving cars and, and law generally, but 
you know, even for people not interested in, in patents, you know, patents are one of the big ways that is responsible for R&D and innovation and really, you know, a lot of the economy. And you have this phenomenon of machines starting to do things that only people used to do. And at the same time, a whole legal framework that was developed to regulate standards of human behavior. And when machines start doing those things, sometimes it doesn't quite work so well, right? So the patent situation is one. You know, we have people doing things machines used to, sorry, machines doing things people used to do. These laws requiring an inventor to be a person were made because most businesses own patents, or, or businesses own most patents, I should say. So most inventors don't own their patents. IBM owns your patents if you work for them. You know, but we care about someone being a human inventor because we want to credit them as an inventor. We don't want to cut them out. And, you know, but that wasn't designed to prevent things made by machines from getting protection. You take it to the self-driving car context, and again, you have a whole bunch of laws designed particularly in the driving context, to deal with human acts of driving, and now you have machines doing the same thing. And even though they're behaving in the same sort of way, there's two totally different liability regimes. People are liable in negligence. So if you hit me with a car, you know, and I was suing you civilly, we'd say, well, would a reasonable person have hit me with a car? And if yes, you're not liable. If no, then you are liable. But we don't ask that question with a self-driving car. Self-driving cars have strict liability. So we say, was there a defect in the AI or was it defectively marketed? And that's a higher liability standard. And in a sense, it's good because it means that manufacturers are more incentivized to build safer products. And, um, but it doesn't work so well if machines are actually safer than people because then you're discouraging their use because you hold them to a higher liability standard. So it, it may already be in some instances that self-driving cars are safer than people, and yet we hold them to a higher standard. Um, it's also difficult because it's increasingly difficult to tell why machines do some things, you know, particularly with AI that's based on things like neural networks where you know, if you dig deep enough, you can usually figure it out, but it's very research, resource intensive. And if I get hit by a self-driving car, you know, unless I'm killed, it's going to be really difficult for me to get a hold of that AI software, prior versions of it, all the data it was trained on, and figure out, well, why did it do this? But without that, I probably couldn't prove it had a defect. You know, by contrast, I think that we should hold AI and people to these same standards, or their behavior to the same standards, and just ask, you know, did a self-driving car run a red light? Would a reasonable person have run a red light? And if so, the AI is liable. Or the AI's owner is liable. Because, indeed, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense for AI. Well, it doesn't make any sense for AI to have rights. At least not moral rights the way you'd think about a person having rights. Right. Although some people are, are advocating for that. And I tend to think these people are either confused or haven't thought too much about <laughs> um, you know, Corporations have rights but really not moral rights, they have legal rights. And they have legal rights because we think that giving corporations legal rights helps improve human well-being. We think that because companies exist, people are more likely to be entrepreneurial, people are more likely to engage in commerce, and this will ultimately benefit people. So maybe in the future there'd be a reason to give AI a legal right. You know, maybe it could own patents, maybe it could, you know, uh, hold security or an insurance policy if it ran someone over. But, you know, it should be clear that the only reason for that would be if it produced some sort of good social outcome for people. 
And it's also pretty clear there's really just no good reason at all to do that. In fact, it would be a pretty terrible idea across the board because, you know, AI and self-driving cars are and will be commercial products. And, you know, there's already been at least one fatality caused by a self-driving car. Yeah. And it was paid out very quickly. Was that the Amazon one? That was the Uber one. The Uber one, yeah. yeah. it was in Arizona. It was 2018. That's right, yeah. Um, even autonomous AI will have suppliers who are liable under principles of product liability. And so people are often most concerned with, well, you know, who or what's going to be liable for this. I actually think those rules are fairly clear. Mm. And I think those rules are probably fine as they are. You know, in answer to the question of, is AI regulated? I think the answer is yes. It's just regulated by a whole bunch of laws that weren't intended to regulate AI. So we have privacy laws, we have, you know, anti-competition laws, we have intellectual property laws, tort laws, whatever. And we haven't really taken a step back and intelligently rethought how this is going to work with machines no longer being tools, with machines now doing human-like things. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, did, <laughs> might be going a bit off the rails right now, but that's that's what this podcast is about. So did you actually see Westworld? I, I saw the first season of Westworld, okay. and I am looking forward to the second season. Yeah. And uh, with that first season, I, I, it's more concerned, at least from my understanding, kind of like, you know, what it means to be human and, you know, the Turing tests and all that kind of stuff. It, it's funny because I know... Uh, it is true that a lot of shit happens in movies and TV before it happens in real life. Now, as much as you understand AI, um, when you look at some of the stuff that's going on at MIT and all these, especially you know with the military applications too now with artificial intelligence, um, obviously Westworld's some pretty you know ridiculous crap going on there. But realistically, I mean, like we're not we're moving in that direction though. It seems. Like, especially with all these, I mean, if you look at, not to get too cringy, but like the sex robots, they don't look that bad. <laughs> like, I cons- suppose it depends on your standards. Yeah. I mean, considering it's like, it's it, like, oh, like it's, it's, they kind of look kind of human, you know, it's, it's getting a little squirrely out there. Well, they do look human and they behave human and they will look and behave increasingly human, but they aren't like people. Yeah. And even very sophisticated AI, even AI that manages to achieve the holy grail, which is, right, so there's a concept in AI called artificial general intelligence. And the idea is you would have an AI that could do just about anything a person could do. So effectively, it would be like a behavioral substitute for a person, not an AI that's really good at playing chess or an AI that's really good at driving a car, but just you ask it to do something and it says sure and does the thing. And one of the exciting or terrifying pieces of this is, well, the first thing you'd want to tell it to do is, I'd like you to improve your own programming. And it would enter this spiral of it becoming something beyond human comprehension. Mm -hmm. And depending on your philosophical beliefs about this, this is either the best or the worst thing to ever happen to humanity. And yet even with that sort of AI, it doesn't necessarily mean it would have any human-like interests. So it doesn't mean, you know, even if it could do these things, it doesn't mean it would be driven by a desire for self-preservation, that it would have its own wants or desires aside what it is programmed to achieve. And so even if you got some robots that acted like people in Westworld, they wouldn't really 
be like people in Westworld. Right. And, and I think that that sort of thing is all pretty science fiction-y still. Mm-hmm. But if we ever really get robots that are genuinely like people, that is really going to mess this whole thing up in incomprehensible ways. Because another thing an AI could do is copy itself. Mm-hmm. And then you would have an unlimited number of robots that are genuinely <laughs> like people. And if they could vote... Yeah. Well, if, if it was... If you really had data on Star Trek... If you really had data on Star Trek, you'd have a lot of data on Star Trek. right? You wouldn't just have one data. Um yeah, it's interesting stuff. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I know when I was watching that, I was like, holy shit. I mean, it's a great show. I, lo- I love a good Anthony Well, Hopkins that's right. You're, you're you know? too young for some of the Star Trek references and such. Oh, I, I know it. I just, you know, yeah. it's like, William Shatner's a good Canadian, so, you know. Well, there, there is that. There is that. <laughs> but I appreciate you bonded more with the Westworld robots. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's some crazy stuff, too, because it's like, yeah, when they become indistinguishable from, you know, then they start having memories, and it's like, Oh, God. But, yeah, that, that definitely is... See, see, I think the memory stuff is science fiction, but I yeah. think the indistinguishable stuff is not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really hard to predict how fast the stuff develops, but I don't think it's hard to predict that we're going to have robots that you can't practically distinguish from people, right? I mean, indeed, they will look like them. They already look, you know, kind of They're like getting people. there, yeah. They're, they're getting, getting there, there. Yeah. Um, They're getting there. And, you know, they'll only... They will only ever improve, and people don't improve that much. Yeah. Which, which is, you know, interesting when we talk about them taking over from things for us, because, you know, with self-driving cars, I actually think self-driving, you know, liability for self-driving cars is kind of the least interesting bit of that question, because after they're about as safe as us, they're very quickly going to be much, much safer than us. You know, and with self-driving cars, you know, or, or with people, human drivers are just terrible. Yep. They cause a, a million <laughs> fatalities a year. Yeah. 3,000 in the UK, 30,000 in the US or whatever. Um, you know, self-driving cars in 10 years after reaching our level may cause close to zero of those or, you know, a tenth of them. Uh, you know, and then we're really kind of struggling with, well, how do we change how we regulate human drivers? Do we stop driving? Um, or do we have some other liability standard for us? I think we should hold people to the standard of self-driving cars. If a self-driving car wouldn't have caused an accident, you'd be liable for it. Uh, but that's going to happen in a lot of areas and in interesting ways we haven't really thought enough about. Yeah, and that's funny because I'm sure, like, just saying that, I'm sure a lot of people are like, you know, like, how can you even, how can you even say that, you know, holding people to the standard? Because that's a high standard. That is and a high standard. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly why you should have it to that standard because it is high. Well, indeed, you, you don't want, if self-driving cars never caused accidents and it was reasonable to automate, they didn't cost, you know, a billion dollars each, you wouldn't want to be a pedestrian in a war- world full of human drivers. Mm-hmm. Self-driving cars wouldn't run you over as you cross the street, and a person might. But self-driving cars are just one of many examples, and it, it gets even, I think, more interesting when you get into medicine. Because there's a lot of things, there's a lot of tasks in medicine that it's not hard to see a machine doing a better job of. You know, and, and the two commonest examples people give are radiology and pathology. But radiology involves looking at images on screens and yep. diagnosing things or... or a lot of pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And AI is really good at pattern recognition. Um, and it's going to be a lot better than doctors. And it raises a question of, well, do you want a human doctor looking at your x-ray or do you want a machine looking at your x-ray? And I tend to think I'd rather have the machine do it. At least once it's clear the machine's better than the human doctor. Right. And, and not only that, but, you know, I don't know that we should be giving people a choice about it. 
or that doctors should be allowed to do it at all because I think it will be unethical for someone to do a bad job of reading a chest X-ray if a machine always does a perfect job of it. Right. Or close to always does a perfect job of it. But we got a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and for a while, you're going to have a machine read an X-ray and then a human doctor look at the machine and then kind of make her own judgment about it. But, uh, but yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I know, like, I'm... Yeah, we were talking before before we started just about how technologically illiterate I am. I'm I'm legitimately technology just scares me because I just don't understand it. Like even just setting up cameras, that oh, it just scares me, man. Cameras have been around for a while, <laughs> and even that terrifies me. So it's kind of funny. I know people always laugh at me too. Like uh, my girlfriend in particular, when I tell her like because uh, she's got the face ID on her uh. phone, and I'm like, you are out of your mind having your face stored in some database somewhere so that that shit can be so say with your fingerprint i got bad news for you your face is stored in a lot of databases well and that's just it is that you know if you think about okay if you have a cell phone like if you have a smartphone which pretty much everyone does at this point all you think about all the i mean even i have my credit card on my phone i mean all this information that's that's out there and you know then when people start freaking out like you know that uh the, the, the information gets stored and and has the ability to be distributed, you know, by companies to other companies for advertising or marketing or whatever. You know, people get squirrely about that. But it's like, well, what did you expect? You know, really. Especially from free services. But, yeah, and it's much more concerning information than, than your credit card, which you could always you know, fix or, or probably Just get a new one, one. Yeah, get a new one, get a new one, <laughs> tell your credit card company that wasn't my charge. I'm not liable for it. I mean, it's really very personal information about you. Someone can figure out from what's on your phone, you know, from where you go, you know, your religion, your sexual orientation, whether you, you know, attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Um, there's a lot of very personal stuff that is not always that well kept track of and not all companies have the means of really tightly controlling it or the inclination to. It, yeah, and I think that's more it too is just because I'm sure it, it costs money to, to have a high standard of making sure that information stays, you know, hush-hush. Indeed. costs a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, when I was back home, um, oh, when was this? I think, bless you. <laughs> I think this was uh, either in April of last year. I think it's something around there. And um, one of the um, lawyers that I'm hoping to article under, he um, was in, I believe it was the Supreme. Oh, that's what it was. So he was in the Supreme Court of the States. So he he was just observing. And one of the cases had to do with, um, I don't know the technical term, but basically when you take a photo, um, it has the GPS, basically just says where you are to a rather... Specific, it's pretty good at pinpointing within a very specific area of where you are. And I guess it was, I hopefully I'm not misquoting this too bad, but I believe from my crappy memory was that it was a criminal case. And the particular area that this person was, I guess, was frequented. It basically, it was a, known as like a gay area. And he was gay, but in the closet. And with, I guess, in the States, you got the you know, all the different, you know, your constitution's a bit different and that it protects, you know, privacy is a big deal. And one of the things was that, okay, so this information is out there, but saying that you're in this area 
is a lot different than saying that you're in another area because even geographically that can tell a lot of rather specific sensitive information and I just it's funny how people don't and when he was telling me this I was like holy crap that's, that's crazy like you wouldn't normally think of that but how I mean even on snapchat you got the shows you on a map where you are it's like holy shit like what are you what are you guys doing like <laughs> Like, oh my God! Like, well, and you all have become the sharing generation. Oh, tell I mean, me about people, it. I try not. I'm generally not on social media for a variety of reasons, <laughs> but I see you young people posting every single meal you're eating and pictures of you going just about anywhere or doing just about anything. And God, it's weird. It's 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 such a. Um... It, yeah, that level of arrogance. It's like, how important are you that you think, ah, check out this mail on me. It's like, no one gives a shit. Like, well, come also on, that, man, you know? Definitely that. But but also, I mean, it seems like one misses out on experiences. If I see tables of people sometimes sitting there taking selfies of each other or themselves at lunch, you know, a group of four people each on their phone taking pictures and I'm sharing pictures that's my favorite thing to do when I'm out is just look at all those people and laugh my ass off because it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know. Yeah, but it's also just everywhere now. Yeah. And even at concerts, like I, I go to concerts a lot. I go probably one or two a month and I've been doing that for a long time. So I've literally been to hundreds of concerts and nice. it's amazing that people like I, I, I used to take the occasional video of, you know, whatever. And uh, for the most part, I, I pretty much just stopped doing that because I just kind of realized like if I, you're looking at an event through your screen. It's right in front of you. Just put that shit down and look at it. You well know? said. Enjoy also, it. <laughs> those videos don't come out. They seem no. at the time like, oh, I got a video of this. Yeah. But then like the sound's terrible oh. and the lighting's terrible. And you're like, oh, what do I have this for? Yeah, literally. I got one Kiss song on my phone. And that's because I wanted to learn the song without bothering my guitar teacher. So I'm like, ah, fuck it. I'll just keep it. <laughs> Sounds sensible. But, no, I know. It, it, it's, 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 yeah. It, it is really funny. And it's funny how it's just normal. Like after a certain time, no one even questions. It's like you got to question the premise of shit, you know. And just because things are happening doesn't mean that they're good. Doesn't mean that they're bad either. But just think about it, you know. Have a, have a think for yourself. Yeah. Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean that, you know, you should do it as well, you know. Yeah. I think we've lost that battle. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, we'll see if the well that may be the that may be the Turing test of the future. Right. Is the robot taking selfies of itself? That would be holy shit. That would worry me. <laughs> it's like looking good. Like oh my god, the robots are coming for us. Yeah, yeah. That that is a scary thought. Yeah, no, it's some wild stuff. And uh, well, actually, so funny enough. So I mean, considering all the speaking, we were talking about this off the air as well. Considering all the speaking engagements that you do and and talks and here and there, which. We, you got to mention the uh, Turkmenistan. <laughs> Eve's already laughing. Yeah. What I what I can say of it. <laughs> yeah, and it was so funny because we were even thinking because I saw a piece on John Oliver's. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, I have seen that on uh, Turkmenistan. It was quite funny, but uh, yeah, we'll get into that. And but you've never been on a podcast, which is crazy, and considering how popular they are, and um, until last night, uh, you listened to your first two or one or yeah, a little bit of a two. bit of everything yeah I, I did used to listen to hardcore history oh yeah is Dan that Carlin a, that's a that is a podcast yeah well, it, it, well that's the thing it's um I think you can buy them mm -hmm. 
I think that's that's how he did it. And then he did it a while ago. And then I don't know. Does he? I don't know if he does new episodes anymore. Or... I'm a bit behind in it, but I mean yeah. that's more of him giving a lecture. But that would be a. It's podcast. more of a lecture. Yeah, it, it is on the podcast app, but it definitely is more of a of a lecture. I have listened to a few of those. He's, you know, I really enjoy his stuff. But uh, well, this is going to get me more into podcasts, and I just don't think anyone's uh, been interested enough in ninety minutes of me talking. Or 45 minutes if we divide it in half, but... I mean, that's... that's Yeah, hopefully not. I, I'm not that interesting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's why I'm doing this Don't podcast. Don't sell yourself short. You're yeah. promoting a podcast. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's the point of this is, you know, one of the things that... I mean, I'm an avid listener of Rogan and Jocko Podcast and Jordan Peterson Podcast and a bunch of comedy ones, so I got my kind of set of eight-ish podcasts that I listen to, and, and one of the things that I noticed in law in particular, and I'm, I'm sure Eve will agree too. So coming from, yeah, considering we're in the UK right now, there's three non-Brits here. And one of the things I really noticed um, in regards to law people is that, man, oh man, they have a rather narrow, and this is total, I'm making, I'm going to preface this, with, I'm making a gross generalization. <laughs> <laughs> got something really good's coming yeah. up after your. It's your a first gross. Comments. It's a gross generalization, and um, but I, I mean, I do think it it does seem to hold up. Is that, with the exception of a handful of people that I am aware of, um, people really aren't. They live in a bit of an echo chamber. They they know what they know, and they don't really. Well, they don't know. They don't really care to learn about anything else, or, or even not that you have to learn. It's a big effort, but but even just the fact, like even right here, like we got a, a for, I don't know how much of the camera's picking up, but we got a Day of the Dead beach towel, and I like the image. It's a fun image, and I just thought it was kind of a cool decorative piece. And it was funny when I was setting up the number of people who came in. Oh, what's that? Hmm. And it's like, well, so, you know, and it's not a secret. In Mexico, Day well, of the Dead's a rather yeah. huge celebration, and it's very interesting, you know? It is. I guess less less of that culture has made its way over here. Yeah, which is fair enough. And, and it's funny because, and that's sort of the big point of this podcast, and, and everyone always asks me, oh, how, you know, who the type of guests you're having? Is it is it law-based? And I'm like, no, actually, I don't want it to be anything-based. It's just anything that can kind of broaden anyone's horizons and, and kind of get them a little more aware of different issues that they normally wouldn't be aware to. And and so anyway, my question is, coming from the States, so you went through law and medicine in the States, um, and you're a teacher over here, professor over here. Generally speaking, or specifically, what are some of the main differences that you noticed, even in the system of education itself, and just the types of people that you're seeing because also you know medicine to uh law arts that's yeah, a bit of a different you know kind of group of people you know that you're being exposed to and what are your thoughts on that yeah well i i take your points on that um there are a lot of cultural differences academically and generally between the states and here and they weren't really that apparent when i kind of came over here a few times on vacation or to check the thing out you kind of you kind of get them more when you live here um, I use the bathroom analogy sometimes. So, you know, <laughs> like, bathrooms in England sometimes have two taps, a hot tap and a cold tap. Yeah, yeah. And So weird. <laughs> well, right. You're burning your hands. You're freezing your hands. Yeah. I point this out to people sometimes. And they're like, well, you could fill the basin. And I say, but that's disgusting. Oh, yeah. Get out of here. Especially in a public restroom. And, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, 
why? And they say, you know, it's been that way for a long time, and it works. And it does. It works. I mean, you can you can clean your hands. Um, or just skip that. You know, there's a Be lot more tradition here. <laughs> there's a lot yeah. more tradition and bureaucracy. Yeah. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not. And I, I think that I personally sort of enjoy environments that are a little more less bureaucratic yep because they're more interesting Mm -hmm. on the other hand you know there's a risk when you change things you make things worse and you know things work why change them so i get that philosophy too but i mean that really pervades academia here i mean academia anywhere is pretty risk adverse yeah definitely yep i mean in the u.s they do things that just would not fly in private industry period um, but, but, you know, they have their own special markets and incentives and, you know, it's complicated. Um, but, uh, you know, England has really a phenomenal educational history that has made it, you know, the envy of much of the world and they, they're rightfully proud of that and resistant to changing it. Although, you know, things are starting to change. You know, the U.S. Is, is, is a bit like this, too. Also changing, but changing slowly. Um, I know. That chair is a little slippery. Sli- chair, away chair is us. a little slippery, but I'm going to keep the microphone. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I was thinking, there. I'm like, I could bring the fabric ones in, or I could bring... I just thought the black ones looked better, but... The black, I know black I'm kinda, looks good. Every time we you look move... slimmer. Yeah, I hope they're not catching. Every time you move, you, you know, hear that creaky crap, but hopefully it's not too bad. I've, I've tried to sit pretty still. Yeah, got to avoid that. Then uh, this is really my first experience teaching undergraduates. So oh, okay. it's definitely right. Yeah, yeah. right. In the law in, in the US, it's always always grad students in medicine too. So a younger group of students. And for people who don't know, um, back in Canada and the States, in order to get into law or medicine, you got to do a four-year, three if you're super smart and you get in, undergrad degree, meaning psychology, sociology, uh, business, you know, whatever, you know, physics, whatever kind of thing you're going into. And then at that point, you apply for dentistry, medicine, law. So when you're coming in, so like you, you would have been 22-ish? Well, a little older than that, but basically, yeah. Because you graduate high school at 18, yeah. I think basically the average age of people in professional school like Laura Medicine is 25. Because you get some older students who come in. Oh, okay, right. but, But like... On a standard track, you'd end at 18, you'd finish at 22. Some people do master's, and mm-hmm. then you start. And then, who? yeah, for PhDs or whatever you, yeah. you want to get into. And, yeah, so the thing is, so when I came here, and Ebe's even older than myself, uh, I'm 23 now, so I would have been, and I deferred the year that I got in, so I would have been, what, 23rd year. Yeah, so 20 when I came here. But most of your classmates are, the British ones are 18, or 17 sometimes. Or 17. And it's like, holy yeah. shit. And, and you're in a law degree, your so, professional degree. So that's something I really don't like about the British educational system. And because I have a daughter who's 12 now, too. And in England. <laughs> so she's getting there up for she, England, she, yeah. She's getting there. No, but in England, they expect you to know what you want to do professionally at a very early age. Yeah. And, and, and much earlier than 17. Really, it's kind of around now that someone kind of gets into grammar school or doesn't. And, you know, within a few years, they have to pick their A-levels. And essentially, you know, in their teens and maybe in their mid-teens, they have to kind of decide on their career path. And it's also a bit harder here. 
it's more of an accepted thing in the States, I think, to say, you know, I don't really want to be doing this thing that I'm doing. I'm going to go do this other thing. I think in England, they're much more like, well, you know, you pick what you want to do and you do it, which has its advantages. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of students here, when they decided at 15 they wanted to go to law school, kind of didn't really know what that meant. Mm-hmm. And also that practicing law is is only a little bit like studying law. And, you know, then you get a lot of people who are like, huh, so I picked this. Mm-hmm. I know the um, criminal, so criminal defense, what I want to get into is, is different than, well, I'm sure you would know. I mean, every area of law has got their nuances to it and what makes it unique and its strength and weaknesses. And, and one of the things that he said was, uh, yeah, law school, eh, it's not that helpful too. And he said, what, what's helpful about law school is that you learn, you know, you got, you know, discipline, you got to go to classes, you got to do your work. So from the work ethic side, it's that. But as far as being a good practitioner, that's stuff that you develop, you know, on the job kind of thing. And so it's interesting, you know, when, you know, because with practicing law, you need a lot of that pretty high level cognitive ability, which is difficult. And it takes a long time to really get into that groove of figuring out what the hell it is that you're doing. And it's funny that, you know, you're expecting in the British system, you're expecting 18 year olds to have that level of maturity. In me at 23, I really just feel like I'm just kind of getting into that groove. So I can only imagine, I mean, God, my 18 year old self was a dumbass. <laughs> I mean, God, me at 21 was a dumbass, you know? But I'm glad at 23 you finally made it. 100%. I am no longer a dumbass. I'm sure a lot of people disagree on that one. But, uh, and it's funny, and it's just, yeah, you're, you're really expecting a lot from, children really who just don't have that type of experience yet and it it just seems like god it's it's a lot to expect of someone it is you know the law school thing the kind of on um, what legal education does is a little bit tricky and i think not understood well i mean for sure it doesn't equip you to come out of school and start practicing criminal law out the gate well especially here where then they have postgraduate training that's right right but even in the states you know i mean the thing is there are are so many things you can do in law now. Few people leave law school and hang up a shingle. Yeah. And, and you know, it's really not designed to do that, I think. Uh, you know, if you're a criminal defense attorney, if you're a civil litigator, if you do family law mediation, if you're a patent attorney, you're really doing very different things. And, you know, law school really isn't, teaching someone the nuts and bolts of what they need to do the same tasks over and over again. You know, and unfortunately for a lot of people being a lawyer, or fortunately for those who like this, is a lot of task repetition. Yeah. You know, like I do one contract, I do it over and over and over again. I do non-disclosure agreements all day long. You know, we're trying to teach, yes, work ethics, you know, and, and it has a gating function. So people who aren't able to do well in school, it keeps them out of the profession. Yep. You know, and and some people are more fans of that than others. Some people think, you know, school's not a good representation of what it means to be a lawyer. Some people do poorly in school and great as lawyers. Yeah. You know, but but we need some means of, of limiting the profession, or, or this is the means that has been chosen or one of them. Um, you know, but we're also trying to train people, well, A, to have a general body of knowledge. Because as you point out, you know, even if I just did non-disclosure agreements all day in and all day out, you know, it would help me to know something about criminal law and tort law and corporate, you know, structuring because it would help me think more diversely. 
And, you know, ideally, we're giving you critical thinking skills that you can apply for the rest of your life. So we're that's teaching right. you how to think like a lawyer. Yeah, that's right? the biggest thing. That's definitely the most valuable part. I mean, maybe we do and maybe we don't. Well, you tell me. Have you learned to think differently than when you came on? Oh, I know. Eve and I, will... <laughs> we, we've had many discussions about this where we're watching a show and that little copyright for, for you, because, you know, since you're here, the little copyright thing comes on and we're like... God, is that? Are we just such nerds that we know exactly what that means now? <laughs> it's like we look at it like, oh, that's actually interesting. Huh? So yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, you but... should tell your friends about it; they'll think it's interesting too. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, I mean, definitely, I, I really do think that it does. But it, it's what you put in, like anything. I mean, it's no sports. Uh, learning an instrument and anything it all just determines what you put in is what you're going to get i mean generally and um so it's just a matter of if if you put the effort in then yeah i mean you will kind of get that result back but it's determined on you you know what you want to do i mean i'm sure as a professor i'm sure you see lots of students who are hopefully few that kind of have the potential who just don't put the work ethic in and but i'm sure you can identify pretty quick kind of who's kind of you know who's on the ball who's giving it a giving it a go giving it an honest effort and who's just kind of yeah pretty quick you know yeah (laughs) yeah and that's and that's fair enough and and i guess the hope is that you know with anything is that you know people do give it an effort so that they can do what they want to do and and move on from that afterwards and yeah although you know on the same hand i i'm you know people have their own priorities yep not everyone wants to be a superstar lawyer i mean in fact in this country also in part because it is not a graduate degree, but two-thirds of our students don't go on to practice law. Yeah, which and, is interesting. Which is interesting, but I mean, I think here it is also a bit more of an all-purpose degree. Yeah. When I purchased the first cell phone when I got here at an EE store, the guy who was selling me the cell phone at the end said, oh, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm teaching law. He's like, oh, I just graduated from yeah. law school. So I'm like, oh. You're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Hey. <laughs> well, you know, I think he was on to bigger and better things. Hopefully, but, yeah, hopefully. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, having a background in law can be useful for doing lots of things, you know, business, certainly. Yeah. Um, but even just sort of for existing as part of the world and developing that critical legal thinking. Uh, and people don't, and just like we were talking about the AI stuff, you know, people, I don't think they really appreciate how pervasive the law is in just day-to-day life. I mean, criminal law and the basic, you know, the, the basic principles, you know, fair labeling, fair warning kind of thing. You know, people need to know what they can and can't do. And it's amazing. I mean, not to get too graphic or anything, but you just think about murder. What's the number one deterrent to people murdering? Is that it really sucks if you get caught murdering someone. It's, you get thrown, it's not fun. You get thrown in jail, it's not, it's not fun. Yeah, well, you know? some people might say the number one deterrent to murdering is, you know, kind of someone's internal moral compass. But, Being nice. But, yeah, but yeah. also... <laughs> Also, punitive deterrence. Yeah. I mean, even just... And it's also interesting, too, like, when you look at sports, and I know um, hockey's had a few incidents, you know, I'm sure you would know, and or actually, maybe not so much, but, but even with, you know, MMA and all this stuff, too, now, you know, it's like, well, you know, do you hold someone criminally liable for, you know, a head kick in an MMA fight that unfortunately kills a guy? You know, what are you going to do with that? But, you know, th- these are just que- questions are all around you. And, and it's not like you have to look very far to, no, to realize how important, you know, 
a basic understanding of how the law affects you on a day-to-day basis is. So the last article I wrote was with Alex Sarch, your 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 soon-to-be former head of school. Oh, right? because you're well, no, he's still here, but oh, but you're you're moving on. So. Oh yes, okay, right, right. <laughs> like, God, yeah. drop, dropping the news on the That's podcast. Right. Yeah, right. we just wrote an article about whether an AI could be criminally liable. So tell us about that. Well, you know, it's interesting if. If AI is moving into doing these things that it used to do, like driving a car, coming up with invention, or you know, taking over from work, you know, what do we do when it takes over criminal sorts of things? And uh, we're we're probably not there yet. You know, there was an interesting case in 2015 with an artist named Random Darknet Shopper. Artist got a hundred bucks in Bitcoin every week, made a random purchase in the dark web, and then displayed whatever was acquired in an art gallery in Switzerland. my God. So you can imagine pretty quickly it was displaying ecstasy, a fake Hungarian passport, and things of that nature. Yeah. So the police came over and confiscated everything, including the artist, because the artist was an AI system. Um, And then the Swiss just let everything go, (laughs) except for the ecstasy, right? Because... um, they are art fans, you know, in the yeah. States that wouldn't have flown, <laughs> you know, but it shows you have AI kind of autonomously doing criminal sorts of things, but it's a little bit different because, you know, there you had a couple of people who had programmed an AI to make random darknet purchases. And you got to think if you're doing that, it's going to buy something that it shouldn't be buying. Yep. And so it wouldn't be that hard to prosecute those people for committing crimes, even if they didn't know what it was going to purchase. They at least, you know, should have known it would have purchased something that would have been illegal. Yeah, there's that recklessness element to it, and that but, willful ignorance kind of thing. Right. But, you know, it's not that hard to imagine with the sorts of AIs you have. You know, there's another good AI story I like called the the Dow. Have you heard the story? No. So this was the most famous example of what's called a decentralized autonomous organization. You know much about blockchains? I do not. My producer Ibrahim is aggressively nodding yes. I, I do see that. He's checking his Bitcoin price on yeah. his on his smartphone. But basically, you have an AI that kind of exists on a whole bunch of different computers. So one person doesn't hold it, it's distributed. And you know, it's software code and it operates according to smart contracts, which are not smart or contracts, but are Self-executing code. So, for example, we could have a smart contract that says, if Donald Trump is reelected as president, you pay me one Bitcoin. If he is not, I pay you one Bitcoin. So you could have a bet. And the nice thing about a smart contract like that is it removes the need for trust in intermediaries. So we could also just go to your friend and say, all right, we have this bet and, you know, you arbitrate it. Problem is, Donald Trump is or isn't reelected president, and suddenly one of us says, I don't remember that bet, or I'm not paying you a Bitcoin or whatever. Well, now you've got a Bitcoin that's up on this distributed ledger, and it controls distributing it or not. And some people are very excited about this. I think it's going to really, you know, entirely change the way businesses transacted, the way disputes are resolved, and it may. You know, on the other hand, you now have engineers writing contracts, and they think they can do a better job than lawyers, and maybe they can. <laughs> but, you know... It's hard to write contracts. The simpler they are, the more stuff you haven't planned for, the more complex they are, the more difficult they are to interpret, and complex systems break in complex ways. So anyway, they built this whole system online that was like a venture capital fund. 
They sold tokens in it, which you could buy for Ethereum, which is another cryptocurrency. And it was like shares in a company. Once this company was set up, it would have no people involved in it. It would operate entirely according to smart code. People would pitch investment opportunities to the organization. Token holders would vote on them. The organization would fund the projects. And then when it made money, it would distribute earnings to token holders. So it was like buying into a venture capital company. Right. I mean, you could imagine a whole bunch of interesting problems with this. Hey, yeah, I was just thinking, I'm like, oh dear. What happened was it never got off the ground because they made all the code open source and they made it um, unstoppable. They made it so that the people who made the system could no longer change it. And this is what people really liked about it because it removed the need to trust other people. Everyone could see the code. No one could stop this thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's often a concern that corporate directors will violate fiduciary duties and steal money or whatever. And a lot of cryptocurrency enthusiasts enthusiasts are counterculture and don't want to be part of that. But this smart code that was put online had a major flaw and a hacker exploited it and started stealing all its money. (laughs) And it had just been funded to the tune of $150 million in Bitcoin. Holy crap. People really bought into this. I think this was 2015. Wow. Um, and so these people who were like, well, we just set the system up so we couldn't take the money said, well, we can't stop this other person from taking the money. Right. They had to plead to the makers or the initial developers of the Ethereum blockchain and say, you know, the, the network on which all this existed, we've got a real problem. Someone's stealing our money. We want you to basically, you know, reset or hard fork the blockchain And they eventually decided to, which was very controversial in that community, because a lot of people said, you know, it's their fault. They screwed up the code. Why should we change the whole protocol for the blockchain? But they did it for the hacker. There's now two blockchains. The hacker stole the money from the old blockchain, but not the new blockchain. The whole thing was a giant mess, which just goes to show some of the unanticipated consequences of these technologies. Um, But basically, you could have something like that doing crimes, and you can't necessarily trace the things these things do to single programmers. A lot of people may add to it, you know, in small, minute ways that combine in unfortunate ways. People may make an AI that seems safe, but turns out not to be. And, you know, the law may not really address those sorts of harms, you know, if you don't have an identifiable person who behaves in a criminal sort of way. And, you know, maybe you could hold AI criminally liable. If you're going to give it rights, why not hold it liable? So, you know, Alex and I thought a lot about this, maybe more than we should have if you just think it was a stupid idea. (laughs) But, uh, you know, many areas of the law are really concerned with why someone behaves a certain way and get, or or with someone's behavior and getting them to behave a certain way, improve safety, innovate more. Sometimes the law is concerned about with someone's intrinsic motivations. So with criminal law, we don't just care that you killed someone. We care why you did it. Right. Right. Like not only did you have to kill me, but you had to intend to kill me or at least have some sort of wrongful mental state or even more fundamentally, you have to have had a voluntary act, you know, because, you know, a hurricane can cause damage, but not act. So, you know, would it make sense for an AI to have a wrongful mental state or could you not have one? And before it's too immediately dismissed, companies are held criminally liable. Under the collective knowledge doctrine, even without a single person who was criminally responsible, that's in fact kind of one of the reasons you need corporate liability because we think sometimes a corporation has really done a criminal wrong in a way that doesn't reduce to a person doing a criminal wrong. And 
they don't have mental states. They don't voluntarily commit acts. You know, we rely on this respondent superior doctrine where we impute things done by people to a company, but we have all sorts of legal fictions designed to criminally convict companies. And you know, does that make sense with an AI? Um, so we argue that you shouldn't hold an AI criminally liable, but only because it's just really a bad idea. Because, you know, like an AI not caring about getting IP, you know, an AI wouldn't care about getting convicted of a crime, but it could have benefits because that conviction could deprive AI developers, users, or owners of an AI or have a financial penalty directed at them. It could influence their behavior. And it could also show to society, like, we're not going to tolerate criminal activity by anything, right? So if you're wronged by a self-driving car that deliberately runs you down or that, you know, intentionally targets you, see, I'm again using words with human kind of intentionality yeah, to them, yeah, but, that's but right. you get the point, um, you know, we're not going to permit that. You know, on the other hand, you'd basically have to say about an AI either, you know, it has something similar enough to a mental state that we're going to treat it as having one, um, you know, but it's still not really clear that there's enough benefit to doing that because it would be a radical legal change. It would have a lot of costs. It probably wouldn't be the most effective means of incentivizing developers of doing things. And really what the law probably needs is just more civil liability for people poorly designing AI systems or remaining responsible for them when they become more autonomous. But but it also has, you know, all sorts of interesting insights into why we punish companies and why we punish people. Right. You know, like maybe a company is legitimately something that could be criminally culpable, kind of morally responsible for wrongdoing, even without an individual person who's doing something wrong. You know, when BP, you know, is responsible for a big oil spill, it is BP, not one engineer somewhere who didn't check something. Or for people, it's it's interesting because you have people also who argue people are never morally blameworthy for their actions because they believe in determinism, which says everything we do has been pre-decided because if I recreate my genetics and my birth environment and what happens to me, there's only one sort of thing someone could do. And those people, some of them believe that, well, that means we don't have free will. And if you don't have free will, how can we say that you're morally blameworthy for the things you go on to do? And so maybe, you know, justifying AI punishment also says about something like this, you know, actually criminal law is less concerned about whether deep down you're a bad person and more about whether you're engaging in antisocial behavior. And if you are, you get punished. And, you know, how bad you are underneath is a lot less relevant to this. Yeah, actually, that's funny. That's literally the topic for tomorrow when I'm recording with Dr. Taggart is actually determinism free will. Well, so Dr. Taggart is my PhD supervisor. Oh, well, there you go. One of them. And and also, you know, he has very generously provided comments on this. And th this is his area. So yeah. that benefited from a lot of his, his insight. Yeah. But but now, now you'll have more fuel for your podcast. Perfect. Yeah. I know. Can you? So I was just saying at the time. So doing pretty good. No, all right. Got about 45 minutes left. So that's actually... We have found things to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I always get nervous, especially, you know, when you, when you don't do stuff like this, it's not, you know, you know, I always get a little nervous, like, ugh, like, oh, God, I'm going to run out of shit to talk about. But no, that's why you got interesting people on, so I can shut up and let no. the smart people do the talking for me. <laughs> and uh, so I think I brought it up earlier, then I think we, we, we went off on a different topic. But um, when you were saying, uh, when you walked in about, uh, so when you listened to your first couple podcasts, um, you said you had some thoughts on that. Um, podcasts in general, I would love to hear. 
Oh, Thoughts on Pac-Man. Well, no, yeah. I, I, I admit I've only heard about, you know, 30 minutes in total of two podcasts. <laughs> Although they were both very interesting, and both were the ones you had referred me to, Joe Rogan. Although you then told me you hadn't actually listened to the I one I didn't listen to the listen one to. I suggested. I just thought, oh, AI guy. Oh, yeah, he'll like that. Yeah. Right. So there was an MIT AI guy who I don't know. But I heard 20 minutes of him and Joe Rogan basically talking about Thai chokeholds yeah. and politics. Or, or I shouldn't say politics it was more sort of social norms around online discourse which both of which were interesting um i hadn't realized quite how easy it was to choke someone with a tie according to joe rogan but that oh yeah makes sense he's yeah. trying to convince people to get breakaway ties or to self-make them I'm still like, no one's tried to choke me with a tie properly yet. Well, and I can notice that you're not wearing a tie today, so maybe that's maybe subconsciously slipped. It, it probably has. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, he's doing good work. And the other was Elon Musk, um, who's always fun to listen to, who has some, uh, you know, strong opinions about lots of things, but who is uh, changing the world in interesting ways. Yeah, and... and uh... I, I actually don't I don't think I listened to the Elon Musk one to be honest with you. I think I I, I just noticed the the big pot you know smoke pot and then Tesla took an absolute nosedive the the next day the the stock or whatever. Well, yeah, you know I gotta say um, though oft a fan of Elon Musk and what he does you know as the CEO of a major corporation probably just not the sort of thing to do. One of the guys I work with in AI on the technical end once explained to me that. You know, he's building computer systems that he thinks mimic human cognition, or at least, you know, on some level. Yeah. And he explained that according to his theory, someone's brain only has a certain amount of essentially bandwidth to do certain sorts of activities. And so essentially, the smarter you are, the worse your social skills become, because your brain can only do so much. And he also pointed to a number of, you know, historical figures where this has been the case, like Albert Einstein, apparently, though, you know, a brilliant person, and I don't know too much about his history, but was not the best socially in some instances. And I got off that phone and I said to my wife, you know, that's kind of sad because I, I thought I was smart, but I think I have good social skills. So yeah. really I'm not. And she said, oh, no, you have absolutely terrible social skills. You just think they're good, which makes it even worse. And I said, you know, that makes me feel better. That's good that you got a wife to keep you grounded, I think, eh? I, I think so. I think so. <laughs> that's always good. Just when you think you're doing good, it's like, nah, chop them down at the knees, eh? Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that's actually pretty funny. Yeah, no, it, it, it's interesting. The, the podcast medium is very interesting to me. And, and like I, I think I mentioned at the beginning, too, like it's about three years in the making, like, like just sitting here right now, like there's a few times where like I'm really trying to focus on what you're saying because the part of my brain is going, holy shit, it's happening. So it's kind of funny. So it's, you know, it's, it's so, really so what, what took three years? Well, I, I, I really got into listening to podcasts at about three years ago, three, three, four years ago. And um, I always kind of I, I've always like even being on camera really makes me uncomfortable, really makes me uncomfortable. But everything that like being a lawyer public speaking being you know in being in that social person you know public perception right and so it's always funny the, the way the brain works is that there's all these you know and even like i would love to be a musician like i'm a guitar player that sounds awesome to me 
but I'm terrified of people, you know, looking at me like that. So it's which is strange because you're pretty extroverted, right? And there's there's and you chose to do a podcast, yes, yeah, but by choice, yeah. No one put a gun in my head. It was you know definitely something I wanted to do. So it's really funny, like that that cognitive dissonance that that exists, right? And it's really interesting, but. yeah, I mean, as far as it just, yeah, it just kind of worked out, just just all these factors. And, and I kind of realized, too, that being here, being my last semester, you know, there's so many interesting people, not only in law and in the faculty here, but in the School of Psychology and, and even just other people who are in England, you know, musicians and comedians and other people who I'm hoping to sit down with. So, yeah, it's just kind of funny. It just sort of all kind of fell into place and... Yeah, it's it's nerve wracking, of course, but it's exciting too. You know, it's it's whenever you embark on a new journey, you know, you, you don't know how it's gonna go. You hope that it goes well, and you know, you just gotta do the best you can in, in preparing and you know, do do what you gotta do. And and you like even this setup, you know, it's very similar to that Rogan setup or the Jocko setup. You know, it's just two people chatting about hopefully some interesting things. And and I think you know. It's also interesting, too, that just a nobody like me is able to start something like this. And, you know, I'm not famous. I'm just kind of just a 23-year-old kid, you know, really. And, and so it's, it's really interesting, you know, that, that medium, how you can just get out there and, and talk to people. And it's amazing the type of people that you can talk to, how willing they are to talk to you if you just show a, an interest, Interesting. Um, Well, I mean, that point is well taken. I mean, I I suppose some time ago, the investment required to have a medium like this was just a bar to someone who wasn't with a big enterprise, and now anyone can do it, Mm -hmm. for better or worse. Yeah, and that's just yours. Yours for better, but yeah, hopefully, yes, any. (laughs) Yours for better, hopefully, but. But yeah, no, that is interesting, and I'm generally pretty willing to talk to people when they just reach out to me, and of course, because you were my student, but who else have you got lined up for this so far? Uh, a lot of professors, um, and a lot of people back home, um, lots of medical researchers, and um, some athletes, some retired athletes, uh, my guitar teacher, I'm really looking forward to talking to him, he's quite an interesting guy, he uh, he, he uh, grew up opening for Rush, and Ted Nugent and all these guys that I love. So it's just, it's pretty cool. So, yeah, I mean, it's lots of interesting people. And, and I think I mentioned earlier as well, you know, the, the point of it is to just, I'm only talking to people who I gener- genuinely think are interesting. Well, thank you. And so there you go. And uh, tell your wife, yeah, this, this, guy, yeah, yeah. this guy thinks I'm interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you're not that Take interesting. That. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's really fun. And, and uh, I'm genuinely interested in a lot of crap so it's it seems like a good fit for for a guy like me and uh yeah hopefully i gotta learn to clean it up too so i i kind of say to myself i only get three fucks an episode so including I, that one i think you're so, up to two now so that's two yeah so it's 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 good you gotta you yeah. got one more yeah yeah and, and so you spaced them out nicely yeah exactly you gotta you gotta space them out so yeah, yeah. no i know it, it's interesting and and uh yeah and, and it's funny that you've never done one of these i mean considering how popular it's the fastest growing medium of any type you know versus i mean and and a lot of the things too i hate and i think i actually said this in the email to you i hate those late night talk show interviews it's just so and i know all that shit it gets millions of views it's so popular and it's so fake you know it's just so not organic it's and you also get you got to deal with you know for the host you got the network 
you know, which usually has a political leaning, especially in the States. That's kind of how it works. And, you know, and even the actors or whoever's on there too, you know, they basically have the script. They're just putting on, you know, uh, you know, they're just putting on their, their act and it just shows in that way. So it's, it's really, it's a big deal for, for me to be doing this and, and talk rather openly about just anything. So it's it's a very raw experience. It's good. I think it's. You well, know. I think it may have converted me to a podcast listener. I'm going to start checking out some podcasts. This is incidentally how I got interested in Bitcoin too. Okay. Uh, Turkish World Television reached out to me because I was doing AI and they asked if I could come talk about AI and I did. And that was in kind of a studio in London with Martin Ford, who was the reporter who broke the news of Princess Di's death. And oh wow! I mean, it was a proper. Yeah, yeah. Thing. And then they called a week later and they're like, can you come talk about Bitcoin? And I'm like, I don't know anything about Bitcoin. And they're like, well, can you learn by tomorrow? I'm like, sure. Tony Stark that shit. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, you, you know, being a lawyer is like this. You may get a criminal client, you know, with a DUI or a murder or whatever. And you're, I don't know, but I'll figure it out yeah. because you have life skills from Surrey. Uh, hell yeah. <laughs> That's right. I, I then I then after the interview had had convinced myself Bitcoin was a good idea, so bought some Bitcoin. Um, so I saw not that long ago that Mark Zuckerberg was talking about creating a Facebook. Well, I don't know if it was a Facebook currency or if it was. I just saw it. I got scared and I just kept scrolling past it. But um, cryptocurrency. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's it's squirrely. It's weird. What's going on with that? Uh, I don't follow it that closely. A- as I understand it, that has been put on hold for a while. But he had a, you know, it was on the one hand perceived of as a Facebook venture, which it clearly was, at least in part. On the other hand, he had a large consortium of companies that were going to do it. Sure. Um, but he basically wanted to make his own cryptocurrency. And, and cryptocurrency, you know, you know much about it generally? I don't know anything. Well, so story of my life. Bitcoin was was basically <laughs> kind of the first one of these, and essentially, you know, it's a currency or a store of value that exists online, but not on an individual computer or a secured individual, you know, intermediary computer. So, most U.S. dollars, for example, are virtual and are just kept on bank software in, you know, encrypted places and you trust the bank and, you know, we trust the Federal Reserve and we trust the U.S. government. And and with cryptocurrency, the idea is it would be decentralized. There wouldn't be a trusted intermediary in the middle. You know, the three of us would have software running on all three of our computers that kind of simultaneously recorded who owned what of this Bitcoin but instead of three of us, you know, it's millions and millions of people. It's distributed all over these computers. And there are incentives for keeping your software kind of recording these things. And so essentially, we've all got a ledger of the Bitcoin that exists in the world and who owns them. Right. So it's like one giant checkbook. And we could just send Bitcoin to each other and no one would be minting it. Right. It wouldn't have the same sorts of inflationary issues. And, you know, it would be transnational, so it wouldn't be U.K. currency or Turkmenistan currency or U.S. currency. You know, we could spend Bitcoin anywhere. Um, the transaction costs of sending it are, are very low compared to traditional currencies, you know, generally. And so 
that's, I think, the vision, kind of a decentralized worldwide currency without the same sorts of transaction costs. And it's, a, it's an attractive proposition for a lot of reasons, you know, particularly initially to people who were kind of mm, skeptical of the government having this role. But this has kind of been a big traditional government role. And, you know, it works because of some technological advances that have happened both in mathematics and in computer science in the past several years. And, you know, Bitcoin was the first, but now there's many of them. Right. And and Mark Zuckerberg thought we could do a better job of this, you know, in part because having it genuinely distributed has some pros, but also some cons. And there may be roles for some intermediaries in this. There are, you know, cryptocurrencies that just are essentially exchanged amongst financial institutions or Countries have sponsored their own, um, you know, um, so so Facebook thought Facebook currency would be trusted and, and used. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Facebook, I don't know. I mean, if you saw that Senate hearing, uh, there's a good argument that that dude's a bloody robot anyway. No one drinks water like that. Give me a break. <laughs> that was some crazy shit. Oh, my God. Well, that would be the first place you might see an indistinguishable robot. Yeah, exactly. If anyone it's, could do it, Facebook could do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's funny. And But I guess not that long ago, when was that uh, – there was a giant – there was that big surge in Bitcoin, and then it just plummeted. I think that was end of – it was either end of 2017, 2018. It must have been 2017. So Bitcoin started as being worth a small fraction of a cent. Okay, so and, and small. It, well, it, small, it, it small. was basically worthless. I mean, yeah. n- no one, you know, it wasn't exchanged for a thing of value for years until someone managed to, I think it was 60 million Bitcoin for a pizza. And this okay. was this breakthrough. <laughs> like, we're exchanging this this virtual currency, which, you know, only has value because we decide it has value. Right. I mean, otherwise, it's just a bunch of numbers on, on a computer. And someone's willing to exchange that for a pizza. Although, you know, a... A, a UK pound used to have value in that you could take it in and they would give you gold for it, right? Oh, so, okay, yeah. Right, with, you know, currencies, you know, in the US and UK used to be based on a gold standard. Right. You know, you ran out of gold at some point, so you need bills that stand in for gold. And then at a certain point, the Bank of England just said, you know what, this is no longer worth gold. We, it still has the same value. It just, we won't give you gold for it. And you could also take a step back and say, well, what value does it have? I mean, it's just a piece of paper. You say it's worth a pound. And indeed, the value of a pound plummeted, but then stabilized. You know, because it's now just worth a government saying, we will accept it in exchange for goods and services, and you need it to do business with us. But otherwise, you know, you could say, well, this is just a worthless piece of paper. Um, so it went from a fraction of a cent as the value of a Bitcoin to 20,000 U.S. dollars. That was its surge. And then it went down and it kind of hovered around $3,000 for a while. And, and last time I checked, it's up around $10,000. Holy cow. So, I mean, from a fraction of a cent to $10,000, it, it fluctuates a lot. But, you know, back when it was essentially worthless, if you had bought some Bitcoin for a dollar, you'd now be a millionaire. Well, and I guess, you know, it's the same difference of, you know, you play the stocks, similar. You know, it's, you just, you really don't know what it's going to do. You, you hope you look at trends or whatever the hell you do, you know. Yeah. I, don't, I don't understand any of that stuff, but, you know, it's a bit of a crapshoot. Well, it you know, if you're a normal person buying it, it could be a bit of a crapshoot. I mm-hmm. mean, companies, you're buying something that does have some underlying assets, right? I mean, you're buying into Facebook or Tesla or Google. I mean, they do things. This is just a currency that everyone has decided is now worth $10,000 a Bitcoin. 
you know, and if everyone's like, you know what, Bitcoin really doesn't have any value or we have better cryptocurrencies or the whole thing's been hacked with quantum computers, it could be worth nothing. On the other hand, if people decide, you know, maybe this is really a better sort of thing than gold because it's a lot easier to exchange and store and do things with, could be worth $100,000 of Bitcoin. In the meantime, yes, if you're hoping it goes up or down, it's more or less a crapshoot. <laughs> yeah. For a guy like me, it's just like, oh, God, I'm just going to stick my money in a mattress, and hopefully that's all right. But... Well, we, we are competing in this with companies that own floors of physicists designing AI systems to buy and sell and evaluate stocks and assets like Bitcoin. So, you know, maybe investing in the podcast is not a bad decision. <laughs> We're going public next week, buy, buy shares for 10 grand a pop got to get rid of that student debt somehow so we see what you used to do a couple years ago in the states was you could just do cryptocurrency offerings and say i'm going to sell you tokens in my podcast there you go yeah harder so, to do I, that now ideas ideas yeah. all the swirling yeah interesting yeah yeah no i know that i mean I, and i guess that's the trend it really is that eventually i guess the hope is that it's going to be all kind of that cryptocurrency type thing or I mean, otherwise, I guess they wouldn't push it so hard, but it kind of seems like, well, but that's like anything. We're getting more reliant or hopefully that the technology aspect, you know, really makes our lives easier. And it has certainly, but, you know, that it continues to do so. Right. Well, and I think that's one of the really important things for the law. I mean, in a lot of the areas we touched on, but, you know, things like privacy, you know, I don't think you can just entirely say to industry, you know, we trust you, do whatever you want, you know, at best there's a few bad actors and at worst you know maybe they don't same the share same values as the rest of society or with cryptocurrencies you know i think it's similarly not appropriate to say we're going to let you do whatever you want with them because people are you know have obviously done fraudulent things with them but you know the hope with ai with cryptocurrency with quantum computing with you know new medical developments like crispr is that this is going to really result in improved human well-being but the law needs to help make it so um, you know, and, and cryptocurrency may also be particularly valuable for places where, you know, we generally, most people here generally trust the government, but, you know, there are places where there's less trust in governments and currencies. Um, and that could be really valuable in a place where you're worried that the value of your currency is going to go to nothing. Yeah, that's interesting. I know that CRISPR one's an interesting one too, especially, I was kind of laughing. There was a, I think it was in China, not that long ago, they, they, I don't really know what it was, but essentially they basically made people that were impervious to acquiring or being infected with HIV, which I thought was really funny because it's like, you guys aren't really up on the uh, the medical research there because nowadays, I mean, PrEP is uh, 100% effective at preventing HIV transmission. You know? Well, yes, I think, well, but access is, is not 100%. That's right. Yeah. Right. So they they do have a big issue with that in China. But, um, you know, and on the one hand, that kind of sounds great. Like, well, wouldn't you, you know, prep or no prep, wouldn't it just be nice not to be able to acquire yeah. HIV? And, and sure, on the other hand, who knows what those sorts of tinkers are going to do to someone over their lifetime. And Yeah, and that's just it. Those long-term effects, yeah. Are unknown and, you know, with current technologies, and this may be one great thing AI can do, unknowable because... You know, the best way we know things in medical research is randomized controlled trials. And there are some things that just are not feasible to study. This is one. You can't take a million people, edit their genes like this, and a million people and not edit them and follow them for a lifetime, which is how long you'd really need to follow them. Mm -hmm. 
you know, both because, well, it would take an entire lifetime. And two, you don't know if it's going to be safe in the first place. And, you know, the costs and benefits probably don't outweigh it. You know, maybe AI can help model some of this stuff. And maybe not CRISPR, but, you know, even drugs that go through multi, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars worth of trials. You know, an AI might be able to say, I could tell you right now what this drug's going to do to someone in all these ways that, you know, used to take, used to be really hard to test for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It, it's interesting. Yeah. God, all this technology stuff, man. You're going to have to get some podcast AI. Oh, that'd make my life easier setting all this shit up. I can tell you not much. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. And, and when you were working as a, as a doctor, um, were you involved in, in, no, were you actually a practitioner? Did you actually practice or were you in, did you do any research? You so, said teaching. I know you mentioned teaching. Well, so I, I teach and do research now at, at UCLA in medicine. Okay. I've, I've had that appointment for about seven years now. Okay. But I used to practice, and my first job practicing was as a prison doctor. Oh, all right. Tell us about that. Well, I, um, I got my academic job and was look, looking to keep my hands in medicine because use it or lose it. Yeah. And I... I <laughs> IP. That's right. That's right. You... Uh, you get your medical license and recruiters. I still constantly get calls from recruiters. We need a doctor. We need a doctor. We need a doctor. And I said, well, you know, I think my job, I kind of want to be free nine to five ish. What can I do nights and weekends? And they said, not a lot of jobs as a GP nights and weekends, but prison. And I said, "Hmm, I don't know about that. You know, plus it was a three hour commute and they're like, it pays very well. You make your own hours. And, uh, you know, it seemed like an adventure. And it was, it was one of, I only did it for a couple of years. I don't think that I would have wanted to do it for longer, but it was just about my favorite job. It was phenomenally interesting and an exposure to a different world of people. And this was a male prison? Female? This was a male prison. Okay. A medium security one. Okay. Which, you know, was an odd cultural experience. Oh, yeah. So you drive up to the prison and they have a huge sign out front that says, this facility does not recognize hostage taking for negotiation or any other purpose. <laughs> And, We're off to a good start. Right. No, I mean, Holy shit. I drive three hours to get to this place, and, and I'm standing outside like, I don't really know if I want to go in here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but I did, and, and one of the first things I noticed was, you know, so they had, they had solitary confinement, which was an unpleasant place to be, but oh, yeah. most of the prison was dormitory barrack style. Okay. And it was medium security, and one of the reasons for this was California was having budget crises, in part because they locked so many people up. Right. Um, and they were privatizing their prisons. This was a private prison. And one of the ways that the private prison saved a lot of money over the non-private ones was they didn't use union guards. And union guards made a phenomenal amount of money, six-figure salaries. Oh, wow. And they Holy would cow. they would tell me that, you know, they, you know, had perfected the art of working the system. So, you know, they got full pensions after 20 to 30 years. Jeez. and. You know, they could retire at their highest year's pension or salary, and they would, you know, all agree that one person would just work nonstop overtime one year before they retired, and then they would retire on that. And, you know, they've changed those rules now, but it was very expensive, and, and the private prison was hiring people at close to minimum wage. Right. And it was a men's prison, but almost all of the guards were female. And it was oh, like that's interesting. two guards to a whole bunch of prisoners. And I, I said, well, that's interesting. Why are your guards women? And they said, well, to work here, you need a clean criminal record. And all of the men in the area have criminal records. Oh, my goodness. And what, where, what, so what area was this? It was the va Central Valley of California. Okay. 
Um, and they didn't have weapons, the guards. And uh, they gave me a, a whistle to, to blow if anything happened to me. So the, the first thing I said was, so, you know, why don't the guards over, or the prisoners overpower the guards? Because yeah. there's like, you know, 50 of them and two guards. And they right. said, oh, anytime they want, they can. They know that. They also know they're not getting out the front door. These large steel gates, we're not opening them for anything. And, and the guards know, you know, this job comes with risks. Right. We have guns on the other side of this door. And we've also told the prisoners, and we mean it, they do something like this. We come in with the guns, and they're not going to like it. And it worked. Well, it's kind of interesting. As soon as you mentioned that, I'm like, God, it sounds like that Stanford prison experiment. It's like there, there's but almost actual, that kind but of... But actual prisons. Yeah. You know, sometimes harsh harsh penalties are effective deterrence. So in Turkmenistan, um, I don't know how many Turkmenistan stories we should get into, but I'll tell you one. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> so they report a 0% crime rate. Yep. Which seems... Very safe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had my laptop bag in the back of my government handler's car with a passport and money and a laptop. And I said, oh, I should put that in the trunk. And he laughed and said, oh, no, no, there's no crime in Ashgabat. And I said, oh, well, what happens if someone does try and steal something? And he said, hmm, I don't know. And I said, nothing good. And he said, yes, nothing good. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And the bag was there when we got back. Oh, there you go. So, you know, yeah. There may be other reasons to avoid penalties of that nature, but it, it did it did maintain order in the prison. I did blow the whistle once. No. Oh. Just to see what would happen. <laughs> For shits and giggles. Yeah. No, no one came. <laughs> so it worked. But it they, worked 100% they, of the They liked me. I was, uh, you know, they liked me. I wasn't responsible for disciplining them. Right. I was uh, just helping them and giving them medical care. You know, for years, they had not gotten adequate medical care. And then the Supreme Court in California said that the level of care in prisons was so poor that it was unconstitutionally cruel and unusual punishment. And this is why they started hiring people like me and paying them well, because they needed doctors. And also, not a lot of doctors wanted to work in prison. Right. I learned all about prison gangs. Cool. There's a very complex gang structure. Oh, I bet. Both in the world and in prison. And I was actually in a protective custody prison. Various ways to get into protective custody prison. The number one was was you committed a crime the likes of which would see you killed by your fellow prisoners. So there were some sorts of crimes, molesting children, for example, or rape, which the general prison population found distasteful and yep. they would find out what you were in for and they would kill you if you had done those things. So those people went straight to protective custody. Ex-doctors, ex-police officers, these people needed protection. And then I think you know, the number two category was gang dropouts. But this was interesting because they would then form new gangs in protective custody because they were so used to gang culture. Because in prison, unless you were an exception if you were very religious, people would leave you alone. Right. Uh, but otherwise, if you weren't in a gang, it wasn't so good. You know, you would be at the bottom of the food chain. Anyone could do or take whatever they want from you. On the other hand, if you're in a gang, that also may not be so good. And they tell you to do something and you have to do it. Or right. Same, yeah, same results, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, this was a new life experience for me. And then I learned lots of kind of practical, interesting things like how to make tattoos in prison. Like, they have lots of prisons. I'm like, how do you get these? Um, it's probably like that old school kind of like Japanese style of like you get that you get that big bamboo pen and kind of 
dipping in ink and stab you, but I, I'm well, sure yeah, it's... Yeah, it is essentially, yeah. a, you know, sharpening guitar strings, you know, but making the Guitar ink, strings? Yeah, it was basically oh, ink, but they had to melt the ink, and they used, you know, outlets and popped them, and uh, they, they're very creative at making stuff in prison. Yeah, well, and, and it's like, if anyone's seen Shawshank, right? It's like, they got a lot of time. Yeah, it's, no. it's amazing what people can do too, if with, all you have is time. Indeed, no, phenomenally creative. There was a while people were asking for fiber pills from me, and I, I didn't quite know why everyone seemed so constipated all of a sudden. And then, <laughs> and then the prison, <laughs> uh, the prison informed me that, you know, by grinding up and adding the right consistency of water or other liquids to it, you could make a paste, which you could then lay on the corner of your cell door and shape into a, a knife, and then you had a shank made out of fiber pills. Holy cow. Oh, I never would have thought of that. If you want to, you know, give someone a nasty infection, there's other things you can do. To it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's like some old... So, like, so that uh, was a good that was a good experience. Yeah. That so and that was so that was a, a medium security prison and then that was a separate prison that you worked in. Or that was the same prison, same just prison, a different just okay. one prison. Then after that I worked as a primary care provider for a while in, in the valley and Yeah. And and I'm sure probably one of the interesting things is like, yeah, so you show up at this place, there's this big sign on the front door saying, uh, if shit goes down, more You're shit's going to go down. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be... No, a... they were very clear about that, well, you know, which was fair enough. No, They said, you know, I asked. They're like, no, no, if the inmates overwhelm you, you know, we'll it see what, what we can is. do. Yeah. But, you know, there's only so much we're going to do. Yeah. Mm, you know, mm. Yeah. I still took the job. Yeah. And and I'm sure probably one of the interesting things like my um, my law teacher in, in high school, he um, teaches uh, in the juvenile centers in the summer, and it's interesting too. And I'm sure for you, you know, uh, I'm sure you probably weren't around a lot of prison, uh, you know, inmates prior to that. Um, and I imagine one of the things like, and you let me know. I mean, and they're just people. Oh, indeed. No, they're they were people. You know, they were largely entirely lovely, and um, he, uh, many of them wouldn't have been, you know, surprised to meet or interact with Daly in other ways. Um, no, I mean, and they were very nice and respectful to me. They liked coming to see me. It, it really was a great and very interesting job. Well, and and particularly if they're coming from, I mean, God, for for the Supreme Court of California to say that that's the level, the 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 lack of medical care or the care they're receiving was so poor that it was it reached an unconstitutional level that is r- ridiculous that's insane yeah like, that's hard to believe well there were a series of cases that that were pretty unfortunate and um and, and people were essentially just not getting care i mean no matter how sick they were it would cost the prison a lot of money to intervene in this you know and it i well, I would ref- send people to the hospital when they needed it, but I was largely doing sort of preventive general care stuff. I mean, but they had previously had, you know, cases where people had severe infections and died because they just left them alone in a cell. And, you know, the details are sad and graphic, but mm-hmm. it, it was pretty bad. And, and, and they're actually the one population, or maybe not the only one, that is constitutionally guaranteed care because the they have no means of getting it on their own, and the state is obligated to do it. Exactly, yeah. And I know it's funny, like, obviously, like, we're in law, so we're kind of, you know, we, we kind of get that a little bit, you know, kind of the, the culture. And, and, you know, but for an average person, you know, it's tough for them to kind of, you know, a lot of what they think is, you know, 
stuff on movies and and tv shows and what prisons are like you know and i i watch law and order all the time you know but it's it's not that you know at the end of the day there it always amazes me because i always think to myself like the reason i'm here a lot is because i just got lucky you know i mean i was born into a good situation and you know, you know, try to make the most of it and all that's, you know, all the opportunities that come your way and work hard and all that stuff too. But I could have just as easily been, you know, a guy, you know, in, in a prison cell because, you know, the, the circumstances I was born into and one thing leads to another. And it, it's really unfortunate. And I think the thing that people don't understand is that, yeah, they're people. They're literally just people. They're just like you and me. And, you know, and, and you know, there, there does have to be a sense of compassion and, and understanding for that type of situation. You know, and I feel like that there isn't. Yeah. There isn't, you know, which isn't good for a whole lot of reasons, both for, you know, society generally because, you know, these people need help to become, you know, successful again in rejoining society and also for basic humanitarian reasons. And I would sometimes, you know, the prisoners and I would often have long conversations because prison was either like there's a bunch of stuff happening or there's nothing happening. Yeah. And, and they often had very interesting life stories. And... um you know, I would read their files sometimes when they would come in too. And, and there were some people who really deserved to be there. And there were some people who really didn't. You know, and gender, well, not gender, race and, you know, financial status had a lot to do with it. Yeah. You know, there were people in there, you know, here I tell people in this country this and they are shocked. But, you know, 17-year-olds having sex with 16-year-olds could put someone in prison. Yeah. Physically incarcerated for years if the wrong things happen. Yep. And, you know, people with certain upbringings, you know, don't think, you know, it's handled differently if you come from a wealthier background, you know, you get a lawyer, you don't tell things. Other people come over, a police officer says, did you have sex with a 16-year-old? The person says yes, and then they're in prison. That's the end of it for years. Yeah. It's a huge cost. And then they're sex offenders for life. And And, and that's the thing is that when they get out, you know, the... the... Life's no hard. To if, hire them. Yeah, you're labeled as a sex offender the rest of your life. I mean, okay, and okay, if you do deserving, like again, it, there's a spectrum. There, there, there's, there's a, spectrum. a huge, that's on the far end of the. Of course, I mean, there's a huge difference between a serial rapist and and a kid who, you know, maybe it's his girlfriend who's a year younger or two years younger, and it's consensual, but the law is what it is, and it sucks to be you. Like, holy shit! It's or awful. this whole thing now where. Teens are ubiquitously sending around photos of themselves and one another. And if you do that wrong, you're a sex offender for life in California. And the punishment is really quite severe. Sometimes pictures you send of yourself. Yeah, that was, I know when I was in, so when I was in high school, kind of missed that. It was sort of between my younger brother, my younger brother's about, he's three years younger than me. So it was sort of in between there. So I didn't really experience that. Uh, in the public system but when I um because I went to public high school but when I went to Catholic elementary school um that was a big thing that they were already talking about was like and I didn't have a phone I got a phone my parents made me get a cell phone when I was 18 because I got into a car accident because mm. I was being a dumbass and didn't have a phone on me so I got a phone after that so I didn't I kind of missed that whole thing well, you didn't have a smartphone until you were 18 got my first cell phone at 18 wow. or 7 yeah 18 I was in university so wow. it was, uh, yeah. So good for you. I can thank my parents for that. Yeah, definitely. Unusual. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I was happy about that. And then as soon as I got, I'm like, I fucking hate this thing. <laughs> yeah. 
but you know and and one of the funny things was yeah and and even in tv shows like the, you, you kind of see this issue come up too is you know the fact like it just doesn't make common sense you take a picture of yourself consensually right and explicit sexually explicit and you send that and depending on the jurisdiction you're in that might make you a sexual offender sex predator or the people receiving it just for receiving it you know it's it's it's, yeah it's interesting especially nowadays you know it's you know with all these hookup apps too we're really normalizing phones and sex we're really you know the distinction is getting a little more you know blurry and, and the access to it and yeah, it's really unfortunate. That... Then you're gonna have the robots, but <laughs> well, the and the other thing people got sometimes I think excessively punished for was drug possession. You know, yep. people who are addicted to drugs would go to prison for a very long time, and prison is full of those people. And it does them rarely do they leave in better condition than they arrive in. And that's just it. And then I'm sure the chance of recidivism goes up greatly so someone who normally wouldn't be in is now huh, they got a decent chance of going back into the system not integrating into society you know which is and, and that's funny and i guess that's the american because canada is very focused and and i know i me and my dad have these conversations too where he's like you know like you read a headline that's like you know how did this guy get this punishment he he feels it's too soft and then i kind of come at it a little bit differently and i look at it and i'm like well I may not necessarily agree 100%, but I certainly am a lot more closer to understanding the fact that it's it should really be based on rehabilitation. Getting people, you know, they commit a crime, okay, shit happens, people make mistakes. I mean, there's also people who are just animals and do terrible things. But the point of the prison system should always be focused on rehabilitation and, and making them better. And that's that sounds nice, of course, you know, and that's tough in practice, but... I mean, it seems like in the States, it definitely is more of that. And the social attitude, too, seems that it's a lot more, you know, that more iron punitive. fist. Yeah, punitive and punish and th- lock them up and throw away the key kind of thing. Right. Although I I, um, I work with a charity here in the UK that helps rehabilitate prisoners who are UK citizens imprisoned abroad. and mm. And actually, though I thought U.S. prisons were pretty bad on this, there's places in the world that are much, much worse. Oh, yeah, yeah, You can have 40 people in a cell half the size of this room (sighs) with inadequate nutrition and no sewage facilities. And, uh, yeah, they're tricky issues. I mean, the reporting on things, too, is difficult, though, because reporters often don't want to give balanced stories about punishments or cases, you know, because the headlines do better than a nuanced examination of this. The McDonald's case, the hot coffee case you've heard? No. Ah, this is kind of like the... uh, the, I'm sure I've heard... It seems like... Yeah, I feel like I know where you're going with that one. woman in the U.S. spilled hot coffee on herself, sued McDonald's, made a lot of money, right? That's the headline. (laughs) Yeah. And then people say, oh my God, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, but you start digging into the case and you find out, well, you know, McDonald's was making very, very hot coffee. It caused severe third-degree burns to her. Which is horrific. Which is horrific. That's horrific. And she also had it in her lap. <sighs> so it caused significant third-degree burns nowhere you'd want them. Yeah. And they'd had a number of complaints for years that this coffee was burning people and was really too hot. And so, you know, she spilled coffee on herself, and she shouldn't have had it in her lap, and that's all true. On the other hand, McDonald's shouldn't have been selling scalding hot coffee through drive throughs And yeah. they knew they shouldn't <laughs> have been selling scalding hot coffee through drive throughs and And they sort of took this 
and made it the poster child for tort reform and I'm, you know, civil liability reform. And I'm not really sure it's been effective that way because now juries are presented with someone where something bad has happened and they think, well, you know, if someone can get millions of dollars for suing McDonald's for hot coffee, this person surely deserves more. But, you know, it, it's kind of hard to have a, a nuanced discussion of complex issues in, I guess, non-podcasts. Yeah. Well, and that's just the thing is that it takes time to dissect issues like that. It's not something that can be done, you know, you use a sexy headline and, you know, and, and <laughs> that's the extent of it. It's like, yeah, these, it takes time and, and effort, which time and effort is not a luxury that a lot of people have to do as well. You know, they got other things going on that they have to worry about and get to. And so it's understandable, but yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. Well, we've had, we've had a lot of this. We've had a lot of press interest in the, uh, in the patent case. And, you know, I struggle to get some reporters to report accurately on it. A lot of people are like, group wants AI to own patents. I'm like, no, no, Mm -hmm. that's not what we're asking for. Then I get introduced sometimes as the person who invented the AI or whatever. I'm like, no, that's not quite right either. It's, you know, tricky stuff. But kudos to you for getting it all right or taking a proper amount of time at least to get it wrong. Trying to, yeah. Trying to. Moving it, moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're... uh... Yeah, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, what do you got going on? Uh, so you said that you, so you settled here. So you just officially moved here? and I mean, you got a family and stuff, too, so I guess you're so, moving them yeah, out Settled here, being or? the technical U.K. immigration term for becoming a permanent resident. There you go. All right, so, I, so now, uh, now I'm official. That's exciting. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it was interesting. It was, it was a tricky sort of thing. Having never been a migrant in another country... Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's more comfortable not being a migrant. And there were a lot of hoops to jump through. I would imagine. And I'm fortunately positioned to jump through those hoops. But if I wasn't so, I can see why this would be really difficult to do. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. No, my family's got to follow in a few years, but, uh, with, with their, with their stuff. But, but that got to, but yes, I mean, you know, Surrey's a permanent job and I've been enjoying it, so no immediate rush to go anywhere. And uh, I love living in England and uh, lovely to be able to get to the continent quickly. Yeah. Just hop on a train and go to Paris for the weekend. That's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, that's good stuff. Other stuff I've got going on. Uh, got a book coming out. Yep. The Reasonable Robot, Artificial Intelligence and the Law, coming out with Cambridge in the summer. We uh, we're doing a book launch in the House of Lords, which is cool. Oh wow! And uh, doing a, a Google Book Talk, so I'm excited about that. Um, you know, and the book is kind of a lot about what we talked about. It's looking at all these instances in which AI is stepping into the shoes of people, and the law doesn't accommodate that well. And I argue that what we need is to not distinguish between AI and human behavior under the law, and that this will better help the law achieve its underlying goals and help improve human well-being. And when, now with the book, was that something that you set out to do or was it just you kind of were working and then thought, oh shit, it'd be a good book. Like kind of how that sort of come out. A little bit of both. A little bit of both. I mean, at some point as an academic, one is expected to write books. Yeah, I'd imagine. Well, especially here in the UK. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's different norms around publishing here in the UK and US. It's weird. So like in the UK, journal articles are peer reviewed in law and shorter. It's like that in medicine in the States, but in the States in law, almost all the journals are just entirely done by students. Oh, okay. Including including the articles to be selected are picked by students. Oh, okay. 
not peer-reviewed, which is strange. And I used to be an editor when I was in law school on, on journals. And a little weird because there you are reading something written by someone who's been working in the field for 20 years as, you know, the expert. And you don't really know, like, is this good? Is this not good? Right. Like, the writing's good or the writing's bad. But, you know, is this point make any sense? But, uh, but that's the system. And, and they're not as into books. But here they're like, you should do a book. I'm like, okay. And the AI thing, you know, I got it in on the IP side. And, and there's just been so much cool stuff to explore about it. So, like, tax. Um, which is not normally the sexiest of legal subjects, you know, coming in slightly below patents. Yeah. <laughs> um, Although I really enjoyed tax. The, the did you? I did, yeah. Well, you had, a, you had a good lecturer, no doubt. Yeah, Ira. he was great, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, Ira and I are working on something, too. You know, it's it's interesting. So if, you know, McDonald's can get one of their automated tellers to do the same work as a person... They pay less in taxes to do that because a lot of our taxes are based on uh, wages. So you make national insurance contributions for employees in this country. But if you can automate, you don't have to pay that tax. Right. And there's a bunch of other more complicated examples of how that same thing happens. And then, you know, perhaps the weirdest bit of this at all is of all is that robots don't pay taxes. Yep. <laughs> which which kind of sounds ridiculous, but... 85% of the U.S. federal government's revenue comes from wage taxes. It comes from income taxes, and it comes from payroll taxes. And if you're automating, you lose those taxes. And businesses may become a little more profitable, but a very small relative percent of revenue in tax comes from corporate taxes. You know, something like 7% of federal tax revenue is now from corporate taxes. So the tax system may lose a whole lot of revenue at the same time where we're saying, well, the solution to automation is that we're going to either retrain people or we're going to have something like Andrew Yang, who's not the first to do say, this, yeah. is, right? They're, everyone's just going to get money from the government. Um, you know, that money's not going to be there if uh, it's getting further consolidated in big businesses that are automating and right. not paying a lot in taxes. Yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, well, and especially yeah. I mean, yeah, because the election's coming up too, so that's a big, it's a big issue. Well, pe people need to make money, you know. And if machines are taking away jobs, that's a big deal, you know. Right, and uh, you know, retraining people is all good, but you know, they need to. It eat sounds live. good. Yeah, yeah. Right, it sounds good. It's tricky. Yeah, and um, you know, the U.S. already has a pretty inequitable distribution of wealth. AI is likely to generate a huge amount more in an even more consolidated way. And, you know, traditionally the way you primarily deal with distribution of wealth is taxes. And, uh, you know, it has been moving in the opposite direction for the past several years. Um, yeah. But, but I, think, I think ultimately it does little good to anyone to have a system where, you know, there's a whole bunch of wealth by just a few people and you know there's no reason why a few people can't be phenomenally wealthy but everyone can't be benefiting from this right yeah you know and tax is how you do that mm -hmm. yeah no it sounds interesting yeah so look forward to that and uh book wise where when it comes out uh where can people get it uh i would well, if you know <laughs> it's, it's a good question the uh you know, it's an academic press. It's Cambridge. Yeah. But it is written for normal people. It's not just written for law professors. Yep. You know, but they're they're kind of like, you know, we're Cambridge. People will come to us. We, you know. Okay, there you go. You see, you go to the Cambridge website. 
Okay. I, I, I assume it will be, we haven't gotten to the marketing plan yet, even though right. it's coming out maybe in July. Um, I assume it'll be on Amazon and, you know, fingers crossed in bookstores. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. And is that your first book? This is my first book. Oh, so that's really exciting. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. When you get, um, I, I think, yeah, we're in mid February right now. So this is being recorded. So, uh, I think it's gonna, I'm gonna post this around the start of March. Um, but yeah, whenever you get a link or two or three or whatever, I'll be sure I stick it on with the, sweet with the podcast here. So yeah, so that's uh, that was a fast two hours. You know, that was a fast two yeah. hours. I was a little nervous. I was getting a little nervous at times, but yeah, no, it, it worked good. out. It was it a great first out. one. So yeah, I yeah. uh, really want to thank you. All downhill from here, hundred percent. And that's uh, yeah, <laughs> hopefully, right? Yeah, yeah. Shit. But yeah, no, nah, it should be good. But uh, yeah, you, you, you missed your third f bomb, so you got to work that in. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking hell, huh? Oh, there, there you go. go. There right, it is. Right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. yeah. But uh, yeah, I just want to thank you very much for for being here. Well, it was and, my pleasure. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully it was. Fu- hopefully, I got you into podcasts now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, podcasts I'm, I'm are convert. awesome. Yeah, one at a time, just like this. Yeah, I love them, especially the comedy ones. And you know, I just like the fact that you can talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about, and you don't got to worry about any bureaucratic bullshit. Because I mean, especially nowadays, I mean, one of the things you know, definitely in in the uh, social sciences is the you know freedom of speech. Uh, who gives a shit about that? You know and that's really awful and uh so you know you have to promote that freedom of speech and expression and talk about things and talk to people and discourse is important so so really happy for you to be a part of that so thank you very much you and bet. uh yeah any closing remarks for you or ooh, well, you put me on the spot with a closing remark I <laughs> a little thought to that but i mean so far i'd say uh you know it's an exciting time to be doing this. So much is going on, and especially with AI. Um, you know, it has so much potential, and I think some of the question is less, where is it going, than when will it get there? Right. You know, and, and will it help us? Yeah. Well, hopefully your, your book will help us along yeah, the way, my too. My book's going to solve everything. 100%. Buy this book. Buy the book. Yeah. The book. Great. Okay. Well, cool. thank you very much. You and And, uh, yeah, that's a wrap. Thank you. Episode one. Sweet. Well thank done. You. Oh, my back. Oh, yeah. God. Uh, chairs aren't that great, are no, they? No, the chairs sucked. Fuck. <laughs> that was so goddamn uncomfortable. <laughs> Sorry about that. Don't put that in the podcast. Yeah, no, no, no. That's all. That's all. All right. I guess I'll sign the form. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how was that? How'd you feel with that? Oh, that was great. Did you think it went well?